People's Power, No Dictator Written by Walter Rodney First published in Georgetown, Guyana by the People's Working Alliance in 1979 1. On the Nature of a Dictatorship in General A dictator is defined as one who elevates himself above all other citizens and often makes claims to be closer to God than mere mortals. Emperors, kings, and nobles of the feudal period easily became dictators because they could justify despotic acts on the grounds that royal power and authority were of sacred origin. In more modern versions of dictatorship, the absolute ruler has to fabricate an elaborate cult of the personality to prove that he is more intelligent, more potent, and generally superior to any other human being. Idi Amin fancied himself not only a physical giant, but also as an intellectual giant. Besides, he boasted of a direct line to Allah. Eric Gehry, our Caribbean ex-dictator, dabbled in Obia and convinced himself that he was better than the world's leading scientists and would personally solve the problem of unidentified flying objects. This is the stuff of which dictators are made. By definition, the dictator is responsible to no one, no organization, to no social institution. On the contrary, he creates the impression that he holds in the palm of his hand the existence of every person and every organization. The dictator is paramount. He gives out land, scholarships, etc., not because they belong to the people, but because he considers that he is doing the rest of mankind a great favor. That is why human and civil rights disappear under a dictatorship. At best, an individual is expected to be eternally grateful to the dictator. After all, that which the dictator giveth, he also taketh away. A dictator is representative of some class other than the majority of the exploited workers and peasants. Class domination itself is sometimes called dictatorship. But of course, all members of the class which controls the given economy normally expect to share in the political power. A dictator prevents this from happening. Even within his own class, there is no scope for freedom of expression. The dictator obeys no rules other than those of his own making, and consequently, there is a tendency for rules to be abandoned altogether. The rule of law is replaced by arbitrary conduct and orders from above. Dictators surround themselves with mediocrities and lackeys, that is to say, by men and women with little competence and integrity, who maintain their positions through cunning, opportunism, and bootlicking in relationship to the dictator. In relationship to the people, these stooges of the dictator become tyrants, who imitate, as best they can, the intolerant and despotic behavior of the big boss. In political life, men and women make decisions about their own welfare. Politics has to do with making choices and implementing decisions. The realm of politics, therefore, constitutes one of the highest aspects of a people's culture. Through one-man rule, the dictatorship reduces politics to the art of manipulation. There is nothing, big or small, which lies outside of his personal intervention, nor does he remember to draw the distinction between public policy and private interest. That is why the dictator and his cohorts continually confuse the national treasury with their private bank accounts. 
That is why a dictatorial regime so often bases decisions on petty spite and vendetta, amounting to what we in Guyana would call grudge politics. On the surface, the dictatorship might appear to be efficient, but the opposite is usually the case. The fact that a dictator is ruthless does not necessarily make him efficient. A dictatorial system destroys initiative. It does not allow the genius of the people to flourish, and it frustrates even that class from which the dictator emerged. Dictators always pretend to be strong men, but in practice, the effort to control everyone and everything is too much. The historical record shows that several dictators were more than a little bit mad before they seized power, and many of them certainly went crazy after some years of despotic rule. 2. On the nature of the Burnham Dictatorship in particular As soon as we have stated the tendencies of dictatorship in general, we have already begun to lay bare the characteristics of the Burnham Dictatorship. But of course we must go further and identify all of its peculiarities. The first peculiarity is that the Burnham Dictatorship has masked and camouflaged itself. It would prefer that its vices be hidden from the public. Why is this? Men in the past have boasted of being dictators. Some have even pretended to be benevolent autocrats, ruling in the interests of those over whom they exercised absolute control. Recently, Samosa of Nicaragua went down fighting as an unrepentant dictator. But nowadays, hardly any rulers admit that they are dictators. The demand for freedom has become universal, and repression feels the need to camouflage itself. Thus, the Pinochet regime in Chile rigged a referendum to tell the world that the Chilean people voted for a dictatorship. Idi Amin claimed to have had the support of the Ugandan masses whom he was butchering. The world has come to shun racist regimes, military dictatorships, and all dictatorial governments. This climate of international opinion offers the first explanation as to why the Burnham Dictatorship prefers to remain disguised. The Burnham Dictatorship presents itself as its own opposite. That is to say, it presents itself as a democracy. This pattern has been determined by the manner in which Burnham achieved political power. Some dictators seize power by violence, as frequently happened in Latin America. Some inherit from a previous strongman, as in the case of Baby Doc Duvalier, who succeeded Papa Doc Duvalier of Haiti. Occasionally, a dictator can arrive on the scene as part of an electoral process before taking steps of brazenly undermining the self-same electoral system. This was the case with Hitler, who subverted German bourgeois democracy in the 1930s. Burnham has taken a similar road to power, subverting the democratic system of which he was a part in 1953. We cannot say that Guyana today has reached the same stage as Germany under Hitler's rule, because that would be to lose a sense of proportion. Burnham as a dictator is petty because ours is a nation of less than a million people. Hitler had a mad wish to rule the world. For this reason, he is generally described as a megalomaniac. Hitler's megalomania was backed by the powerful German economy and the might of the German army. Burnham's megalomania is closer to comedy and farce. It takes the form of wearing a general's uniform and hoping that the army will conquer his own people. In the long run, however, every dictator is like any other dictator. Burnham certainly has the capacity to make life miserable for the entire population of our small nation. 
Like all classic dictatorships, that which exists in Guyana has fostered the cult of the personality. The minority PNC regime has used all manner of tricks and gimmicks to make the comrade leader appear to be a demigod. Some of the gimmicks were inherited from our past of colonial oppression. Thus, on the exercise books of school children, the face of the reigning English monarch was simply replaced by that of the prime minister, even though there is a president as constitutional head of state in Guyana. Other practices which promote the cult of personality have been adopted in flagrant violation of our culture. It is on record that one Hindu pandit insulted his co-religionists and Guyanese as a whole by stating that Burnham is a reincarnation of Lord Krishna. All Guyanese can attest to the many maneuvers of the PNC regime to glorify and deify the man Forbes Burnham. We've been afflicted with his face, his name, his voice everywhere. This obscene and vulgar behavior eventually had a damaging effect on our entire artistic production, including the strangling of our Calypso tradition so the Calypso crown could be won by whoever shouted the loudest praise to the dictator. When Burnham could not pretend that he was the greatest, he sought to attach himself shamelessly to the shirt tails of those who had proved their greatness in one field or another, ranging from Fidel Castro to Muhammad Ali. Most West Indians were totally disgusted by the ridiculous practice of Burnham laying personal claim to Clive Lloyd and the West Indian cricket team. For a small nation, Guyana has produced a discouragingly large number of lackeys and stooges who hide in the shadow of the comrade leader. Guyanese constantly complain of square pegs in round holes. The square pegs are the misfits and soup drinkers who flourish because each one is prepared to be his master's voice. This is a double tragedy in this situation. First there's the tragedy, with some mixture of comedy, of the incompetent, the mediocre, and the corrupt making a mess of things. Secondly, there's the tragedy in which men and women of ability and integrity have been dismissed, where they have run away, or they have been reduced to silence. This part of the tragedy involves honest police officers who must condone corruption, doctors who must heal without drugs, managers who are not allowed to manage, and workers who are not permitted to produce, and then are forced to consume a diet of lies and deceit. And all of this, incidentally, is carried on in the name of socialism. The smallness of our society also draws attention to the highly personalized nature of the dictatorship. The dictator and his cronies make it their business to hire and fire. They interfere with major management decisions, and they intervene in the most trivial affairs. The ruling clique can be vindictive with appointments at the supposedly independent University of Guyana, as they can be vindictive with regard to businessmen applying for licenses for imports controlled by the government. The dictator can personally intervene to stop a soldier from going on leave, to prevent a junior clerk from getting a promotion, to victimize a casual worker for failing to toe the line. Decisions as to who to prosecute in the courts should normally be made by the director of public prosecutions. Many of these decisions are made by the dictator himself in Guyana and are influenced not by the well-being of the state, but by personal spite. It is said that the comrade leader boasts of his long memory and marks down persons for victimization even if he has to wait for 15 years before he can vent his wrath on them. 
When Guyana achieved independence in 1966, the PNC was a minority government which had come to power through dubious means. Ten years later, it had become a dictatorship in which the state control over the economy was the main weapon used to keep people in line. Burnham and his cronies consider themselves powerful and clever men when they successfully threaten and intimidate a mother by bringing threats against her children. The Italian writer Machiavelli is famous for his analysis of politics as the art of manipulating power. Machiavelli's best-known book, The Prince, was written some 450 years ago as advice to a ruler with absolute power. We have sat on the authority of the late Jesse Burnham that her brother Forbes was a firm disciple of Machiavelli. In his own words, Burnham has described politics as the science of deals. He likes to wheel and deal, and to treat persons as though each can be bought and sold. Burnham encourages around himself individuals who are weak or corrupt because he then exercises vicious control over them. According to Burnham's thinking, the ends justify the means, and the only means which matter are those which have to do with achieving and holding onto power. Any means are acceptable if they allow him to keep control over the state machinery. This is the ultimate in cynicism, and fully reveals the Machiavellian strategy which has guided Burnham in his pursuit of absolute power in Guyana. On the international scene, Burnham could never be a powerful force, but he has proved crafty and cunning in achieving his ends within Guyana. An old woman at Borda shouted at a recent political meeting that Burnham mech Satan cry. This remarkable piece of wit from the Georgetown streets was in response to the deviousness of a man who has worked out a long-term plan for dividing and ruling the Guyanese people, all of whom he holds in deep contempt. Again, we should refer to the pamphlet by Jesse Burnham, entitled Beware My Brother Forbes, in which he describes his racist attitude to Indians, his absolute selfishness, and his limitless ambition to hold others in domination. Jesse Burnham also provided evidence as to the stealthy manner in which Forbes Burnham went about his objectives. The Burnham dictatorship crept up on the Guyanese people like a thief in the night. His violations of human rights were frequent, but they were sufficiently gradual that many persons did not realize what was going on until it was too late. Take, for example, the end of freedom of the press. This was not achieved by any single action or by any single law. First, one national daily newspaper was nationalized, and the second followed later. The two were then merged. One radio station was taken over by the government, while the second was kept under manners. Eventually, the two became government-owned and came under one management. Meanwhile, the opposition press was being restricted even at the level of one-page duplicated sheets. The nationalized press and radio are, of course, maintained by revenue produced by all Guyanese. But step by step, they became the personal tools of the dictator and his clique. Press and radio journalists lost all independence and professional dignity. Today, the Chronicle newspaper is proud to announce itself as the sister of the New Nation publication, which is the official organ of the PNC party. Many Guyanese of goodwill are wondering whether there was a point at which they should have taken a stand to defend the freedom of the press. The best time to fight for a freedom is when it exists and is first threatened. But few Guyanese were prepared to come forward in the early years of the Burnham dictatorship because they were simply hoping for the best. 
Burnham recognized this attitude as a weakness of our people and he made the most of it. Today there is no press freedom to defend. This is only a freedom destroyed which has to be rebuilt. The fate of the army and police can serve as other examples of the trickery which built the Burnham dictatorship. According to the Guyana constitution, each soldier or policeman takes an oath of loyalty to this country symbolized by the head of the state. Each soldier or policeman is expected to be loyal to the commands of an elected government representing the people. Little by little since independence, loyalty to the country became loyalty to the PNC and then personal loyalty to Burnham. The uniformed forces helped the PNC to beat down the majority opposition in 1973 and then by July 1978, they were helping Burnham to steal the rights of 90% of the population, including the rights of many former supporters of the PNC. One wonders whether the soldiers and police realized when they stopped being loyal to the country and started being the watchdogs of a dictator. In the old days, the three-card con game was very popular in Georgetown, especially in Lombard and Water Streets. The three-card deals used to announce, the more you watch, the less you see, as they cunningly flipped their cards from side to side. Forbes Burnham is our national champion three-card con artist. There's another side to the gradual way in which the Burnham dictatorship was established. Guyanese were dealt blow after blow without being knocked out, but we certainly became dazed and stupefied. Our national poet, Martin Carter, was one of the first to comment publicly on this process. He mentioned how the senses of Guyanese were being dulled. Martin Carter called this the paralysis of the spirit. Many decent Guyanese were tricked into doing dirty things, believing that these acts would contribute to their own welfare. Instead, each dirty deal simply confirmed the power of the dictator and allowed him to turn around and insult even former supporters. As we would say in Creole, people get use and then they get views. Burnham is well known for his flowery language. Unfortunately, some of our people fell victim to the sounds of words without examining the meaning. Paramountcy is one of Burnham's fancy words. He announced the doctrine of PNC paramountcy, or domination over parliament, the courts, the press, and everything else. In fact, paramountcy was the official statement that a minority party which was growing smaller and smaller intended to maintain dictatorial rule over the majority. At the same time, Burnham made it clear that he was paramount over the PNC. The PNC party constitution gives Burnham so-called reserve powers, which are greater than the reserve powers of the old colonial governors over the legislature. The PNC constitution states as follows. If the leader is of the opinion that a situation of emergency has arisen in the party, he shall have power to take all action necessary to correct such a situation. And for this purpose, he may assume and exercise any and all of the powers of the Biennial Delegates Congress, the General Council, the Central Executive Committee, any other committee, group, arm, organ, or any other officer or official of the party. Burnham the Dictator is paramount over the Paramount Party. 3. On the Rights of the People when Guyana gained its independence, it inherited what is called the bourgeois democratic system of Britain. Socially and economically, the population remained divided into different classes, while politically, 
Everyone had a right to help elect a parliament which had one or more parties. The constitution of independent Guyana was the product of class struggle waged partly in Europe and partly inside Guyana itself. It was the people's struggle inside Guyana which contributed most to political freedom in our country. The efforts of slaves and indentured bondsmen made the question of liberation both a national and international issue. Given our background of slavery, the question of freedom can never be ignored in Guyana and the Caribbean. Today, we take for granted the freedom of worship, but it was not a freedom readily granted by our oppressors. When a few nonconformist ministers of religion first suggested that slaves should have access to Christianity, they were resisted by the slave masters. Those slaves who wished to practice the Christian religion ran terrible risks in order to insist on their right to worship as they chose, just as thousands of slaves had earlier fought to continue holding their African beliefs. Under indentureship, the situation was not very different. It was usually after the end of their five-year bond that our Indian foreparents were able to turn to the temple, the mosque, or the church, as the case may be. One of the most bitter struggles in the history of Guyana has been the struggle to establish the right to work, that is to say, the right to be offered employment which would provide a decent living. The right to work means the right to eat and the right to live. After slavery, the free population was willing to work, but they demanded fair conditions, and planters brought in indentured laborers to undercut the demand for better wages and conditions. The indentured laborers themselves soon grew aware of the situation. They too demanded better conditions, and the result was that they were refused employment while fresh indentured laborers were brought in. The right to employment in crop time, the right to employment out of crop season, the right to employment in the public sector, all of these were at least partially won by the end of the colonial period. Alongside the right to work was the right to housing. Acquiring a house depends on what one earns, and is therefore linked to the right to work. Plantation laborers were housed in logies from slavery days. When laborers became free, the planters told them they could enjoy the privilege of staying in the plantation logies if they worked on the estates without protest. Right up until recent times, estates have ejected tenants who exercised their right to strike. That is why our people have always preferred houses in a village instead of houses on estates. On the sugar estates, in the villages, and in the towns, workers have organized to demand decent housing and to demand housing with no strings attached. Housing is not a favor which the dictator has granted to the people. The right to housing is an internationally recognized and fundamental human right. It is one for which the Guyanese people have struggled in the countryside and in the towns. In the colonial days of British Guyana, rural workers and farmers made the magnificent contribution of establishing free villages like Buxton on the east coast, Demerara, Queenstown in Essequibo, and Furish Gibraltar in East Berbice. The village residents fought the planters and the colonists in order to practice democracy at the local government level. The urban working class led the way in establishing trade unions and in exercising the right to strike. Stevedores were among the most abused and exploited workers in the colonial system, yet it was the stevedores and other dock workers who sacrificed to make trade unions possible. Our middle class identified themselves with popular campaigns against dictatorial governors, against corruption in the public service, against planters manipulating elections, and against the misuse of the authority of the courts. 
all classes in the colony of British Guyana fought to promote freedom of expression in public places and in the press. The end result of all this was the election of governments of their choice. Popular struggle in Guyana won concessions which were partial and temporary. Clearly, there could never be full justice under colonialism, capitalism, and imperialism because of deep-rooted class inequalities. The hope of the majority was that elected governments and national independence would revolutionize the economy and society so that justice would prevail. Most Guyanese live on the coastlands. These coastlands were once desolate swamps flooded by the sea and the savanna waters. The dams and the canals, the roads and the houses, the fields and the factories, the schools and the churches, the words and the gestures, all these represent our common heritage. Her foreparents planted their strength, their seed, and their intelligence in a country which is now ours. Neither the land nor the rights of the people are gifts of the Burnham dictatorship. On the contrary, that dictatorship has placed the nation in reverse gear. It is destroying the economy and it is stealing the rights of the people. Halfway done. We will resume in the next menagerie with section 4, titled Expose the Burnham Dictatorship. Remember that you can get the menagerie before the rest of the world and an invite to the Discord server for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash epicincredulity. That's patreon.com slash epicincredulity. Higher levels of support will unlock access to even fancier things like stickers, bonus episodes, shoutouts on the main feed, or whatever else we have the capacity for. And for now, comrades, enjoy the epoch.